but what in the butt? And welcome to episode 20 of Have a Blessed Gay, your weekly spiritual comedy podcast. I am your holy host, Tyler Martin, and I have got some exciting shit to tell you. I pooped today, twice. Oh, but also, you gotta go check out the Have a Blessed Gay website in all its glory. It is haveablessedgay.com. It's absolutely beautiful. And the trick was having a talented partner. Enrique, my stellar, sexy partner, helped a great deal with the site and with the graphics. So a big thanks to him. It looks wonderful. Go on there to see all the episodes, guests, and show info, and you can sign up for the new weekly spiritual comedy newsletter. That's right. So you better go on that website, pop in your email, and subscribe to the newsletter, your new spiritual comedy resource. It's totally free, of course, and I promise I will not be flooding your inbox. Types of things to expect are activist opportunities, book suggestions, current events, motivation, challenges, episode and guest info, and something that I am so excited about. You'll find out when new articles drop on the B word. Wait, where, how, who, what is the B word? Okay, some more exciting news. Along with the beautiful website, I am launching a vertical called The B Word. The B stands for blessed, but art is subjective, so you might want to exchange that word for something like beautiful, bitch, or bloated. Or in my case, a blessed, beautiful bitch that is bloated. As the editor, I am creating and curating a space for outcasts to share their journeys, ideas, questions, and resources, all to do with religion and spirituality, centralizing it in one place. You'll be able to read articles from people of various religions, faiths, and spiritual walks of life who are questioning, daring to be different, and making positive changes in their communities. I have some totally lit pieces lined up by some super talented people. I cannot wait to share them with you. The B Word will be launching next Tuesday, which is why subscribing to the newsletter is so important. As always, thank you for listening, subscribing, leaving reviews. If you haven't yet, please do so. I really do appreciate your support and help in making spirituality accessible to everyone. Now, if you want to go above and beyond while you are perusing the website, you can support the podcast now with the money. All this content is free, including the podcast. So if the spirit moves you to donate a little, you can click the support page on the website or just go straight to donating by clicking the tab labeled the offering tray which is just an adorable name. You know, I really think I got the religious pun thing down. Donations are run by Squarespace's secure site. You can leave $1 or $100,000. Hey, a boy can dream, right? Either way, your support will go a long way in spreading joy, inclusivity, and making it to where I can pop out some more content. Like... This amazing combo I have for you today. I had the privilege to talk with the inspirational Abby Stein. 
Abby Stein is a Jewish educator, writer, speaker, and activist. She was born and raised in a Hasidic Jewish community in Brooklyn, isolated in a culture that lives according to the laws and practices of 18th century Eastern Europe, speaking only Yiddish and Hebrew, and shunning modern life. Abby was born as the first son in a dynastic rabbinical family, poised to become a leader of the next generation of Hasidic Jews. But Abby felt certain at a young age that she was a girl. She suppressed her desire for a new body while looking for answers wherever she could find them, from forbidden religious texts to smuggled secular examinations of faith. Finally, she orchestrated a personal exodus from ultra-Orthodox manhood to mainstream femininity, a radical choice that forced her to leave her home, her family, and her way of life. In 2012, she left the ascetic world, and in 2015, she came out as a woman of trans experience. Since coming out, she has been working to raise support and awareness for trans rights and those leaving ultra-Orthodoxy. Her story has been covered all over the world, including in the New York Times, New York Post, New York Magazine, and Vogue. She's also made live appearances on CNN, NBC, Showtime, and now this, just to name a few. Today, she lives in New York City, now a graduate of Columbia University and an English speaker, her fourth language. Yeah, doesn't that make you feel unaccomplished? First of all, how many 18th century inspired communities have you left? And then second, how many languages do you speak? I am stoked to have Abby on the show. We chat about her beautiful book, Becoming Eve, My Journey from Ultra-Orthodox Rabbi to Transgender Woman, which, if you want to learn more details about the Hasidic Jewish community, I highly recommend it. We also talk some about her life while in the Hasidic community, how she creatively rebelled against it until she eventually left, and how she acclimized to a new life. Please enjoy this awesome discussion. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, the leading provider of online counseling. Y'all, the world is crazy and mental health is important. Some might even call it spiritual. I personally use BetterHelp myself and absolutely love what they're doing. BetterHelp makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. So if you're struggling emotionally, battling anxiety, or you can't stop crying after an episode of Queer Eye, BetterHelp can be there for you anytime, anywhere. Go to my personal link at BetterHelp.com slash gay to check it out and get what? 10% off. The best part is you don't even have to leave your house. They offer four ways to speak with a licensed counselor, video calls, phone calls, real-time chat, and direct messaging. All counselors have been qualified and certified by their state's professional board. In other words, you're not talking to a lobster dressed in human clothes. They're legit. All you gotta do is go to my link at betterhelp.com slash gay and begin the questionnaire to match you with a therapist who is uniquely qualified to serve your needs. How sexy. It's super duper easy and you're matched within 24 hours or less. BetterHelp has a monthly subscription rather than paying per session, which makes it cheaper. But if finances are still a concern, financial aid is available for those who qualify. Get counseling, improve your life, and help this podcast out in the process by going to betterhelp.com slash gay. Sign up today and get 10% off. That's betterhelp.com slash gay.
Abby Stein. Welcome to Have a Blessed Gay. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. I'm excited to be here. Well, let's just get into it. Tell us who you are and what the hell you do. Okay. What's with these existential questions? <laughs> right out of the gate. So I do want to say, I do know who I am. And a big part of what the hell I do is obviously very much intertwined with who I am. But I think just as importantly, it's intertwined with not knowing who I was for a very long time. Personally, I am many things. I am a woman who is a woman with no quantifiers, who got to that part to a journey, to a, tr- a woman of trans experience, I like to say, a journey that I'm very proud of and very proudly identify with. I'm also an author. I'm also a former, present, future rabbi, depending who you ask and how you look at it. I got uh, ordained by a super fundamentalist, what's called the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jewish community. So the people that the movies love to stereotype that they all work in diamonds. My grandfather did work on 47th Street Diamond District. I know I'm not helping the stereotype. <laughs> so, but most specifically today, um, most of them don't anyway, but that's where I got ordained. But and then for a long time, I was angry on everything that smelled religious or spiritual, or as one of my teachers, mentors today calls it, post-God traumatic disorder, which is a very real thing. Though lately I've been embracing more and more specifically the activist progressive side, closest part where I've been using my rabbinical and clergy training was to help and support the LGBT community. And very importantly, not just support, but celebrate. One of my go-to sayings for the past few years has been that I hate tolerance. And tolerance is perfect when it comes to lactose. You know, I'm lactose intolerant and that's okay. Oh my gosh, me too. Exactly. That's totally fine. But not people. We need to stop talking about tolerance, but rather focusing on celebrating. And regardless of how religious one is, I've learned that I can use some of the education that I have to bring that into action. Oh yeah, there is such a difference between tolerance and acceptance. To be tolerant is to be higher than. It is a very privileged way of looking at things. Basically saying, even though a person is annoying, not an equal to me, or even though they are sinful, I am going to love them anyway. Whereas acceptance is truly welcoming without limits, loving someone, believing everyone has the same rights as human beings. It's the difference between loving someone in spite of versus because, well, because of. of. Yeah, Which totally. It is. Like, imagine a party with no gay people. I mean, what the heck? Is it a party then? Yeah. <laughs> Abby, your book was actually given to me as a gift. And I remember reading the title and just thinking, damn, this is my shit. (laughs) Your book is called Becoming Eve, My Journey from Ultra-Orthodox Rabbi to Transgender Woman. I was sucked in from the very beginning, and I really did enjoy reading about your journey. In the book, you primarily focus on your childhood and the culture surrounding ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Judaism. There are a lot of stereotypes around the community, specifically in media. So I want to hear from you. What is that culture like? Well, I will say not all stereotypes are wrong, meaning just because something is a stereotype doesn't mean it's off. Um, I will say what I have found surprisingly a culture that is probably very similar in the mindset, not in the religion, but in the mindset 
are the Amish in some ways. Uh, again, it's not the same. Don't don't jump on me and be like, oh, here are the differences. Yes, I know there are differences. There are different religions. There are different cultures. But there are a lot of similarities. But, but so what I find so surprising is that uh, Americans tend to know a lot more about the Amish than about Hasidic Jews, but there's a lot more Hasidic Jews in the U.S. than Amish people, believe it or not. And I think that partially speaks to another detail of the culture is that they are so sheltered that most people don't even know how sheltered yeah. they are. I mean, most people don't know much about it. So um, if I have to um, put it in one sentence, the idea of the culture, and again, I'm focusing on the culture, not on the religious part, because in many ways, what I grew up with, there was a bigger emphasis on the culture or what I say sometimes, the culture. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like kind of a cult, but they're not suicidal and they're a bit too big. So maybe like, you know, it's not the stereotype of a cult, but very similar to that. That was almost more important than religion. Like if you like told someone secretly, you know, I don't actually believe in God and you didn't do anything about it, you would get into less trouble than showing up one day, like let's say you are a married man and you show up one day to synagogue wearing jeans and a colored shirt. You will get more in trouble for that, which is by the most strict interpretations of a Jewish law, take it from someone who got educated in it, is no problem whatsoever. But that you're going to get into trouble because that's against the culture, as opposed to just saying you don't believe in God, but not actually acting on it. Everyone's like, yeah, technically that is a huge sin and whatever, but no one knows about it. You're not challenging the culture. I think that is very important for people to realize. Now, the goal of, of how it developed. So the Hasidic movement as a movement was founded by this rabbi went by the name Israel Ben Eliezer. He's known as the Baal Shem Tov. In Hasidic Judaism, he is like kind of very similar to Moses, like the prophet Moses. So imagine uh, what a journalist told me once, Joseph Smith and like Mormonism, or like, I don't know who other, like almost like Jesus, besides the fact that we actually think he died and stayed dead and we don't <laughs> think... Uh, he's God or anything like that, but very, very close. Like some of the titles used for him are the light of the seven days, which refers to this like pure light of God that was so strong that God had to hide it after seven days of creation because no one could survive it. Uh, he's called an angel of the living God or whatever. All of these are standard titles for him. So that's kind of like the figure that he is. He's also my direct ancestor five times, um, which is, it does did have a strong impact on my childhood and everything else. But when you actually read the stories and what I do now, he was actually a hippie. Like in every sense, well, not in every sense of the war because it was pre-60s. Pre he was, like you read the stories and there's all these like, I don't know how many of them happened, how many of them didn't happen. Um, but he definitely sounds like someone who didn't care. He cared more about singing and dancing and spirituality as opposed to following the letter of the law. He we he was wearing different clothes. He was called a miracle worker who was doing like healing. And that actually, we know not just from Hasidic stories, a few years ago, someone actually found the tax records and he was labeled as a doctor, though I doubt he ever had an academic doctor education, but he was kind of like that, like spiritual healer. All the stories I know about him. He used to like, there's all these stories how he used to go to the forest and there's like a supposed story that he walked and there was like, he was getting to the edge of a mountain um, and he was so, well, supposedly he was so like, I don't know, entwined with the divine, but the same stories also do a lot about how he was smoking a like cigar and then he would like 
connect with the divine. And I think we all know what was in that cigar. <laughs> probably, I don't think it was me, probably like hashish or some other like uh-huh. hallucination, whatever. But there's all these stories. I would like walk in the forest and like uh, uh, go to the mikvah, which is like this ritual bed, aka skinny dip in like the rivers. Like it was like all these like fascinating stories. Anyway, and when it actually started, it was a populist movement. It was very much supposed to fight against the establishment, and it was. Like, the, the religious establishment at the time went all out against the movement. Um, and that kind of, like, lasted for the first few generations, and then they slowly started becoming more and more traditionally observant in whatever that mean, way meant. And they, they started pushing their more radical ideas to the side, and then they kind of almost took it the other way around. So to give you an example, there's a letter written by... Um, some of this, another Hasidic Rebbe is also my direct ancestor because Hasidic Rebbe's kept, their kids kept marrying each other forever. I'm like, I sometimes joke, and I hope it's okay to say on here, but I sometimes joke that I'm not allowed to masturbate because it's incest. Because <laughs> oh I am my, my own gosh. many times. That is hilarious. And yes, totally all right to say on here. We stand masturbation. Great. <laughs> Point being, yeah, so they have been doing that for a long time. But there's this one letter from a, a, a person, a teacher, a leader who lived in the fourth generation. And you can already see it's like four generations after uh, Grandpa Hippie started the movement. I never tried calling him that. I think I'm going to totally trade my You should definitely start that. Yeah. It sounds good. Anyway, and he writes a letter and he's like telling like someone was his father, student, was asking him questions about when do we sing that specific song? When do we say that specific prayer? And he's like, and I'm translating from Hebrew, but he writes, I was shocked to learn that they are such bullshit. I can't think of a better way to translate. He doesn't say BS. He said an Hebrew word, but it very much translates to BS, that there's such BS in the world and that that's what you focus on. And yet when you look on the Hasidic movement today, that is very much what it is. That's really fascinating. And it's actually a super repetitive story that has happened with countless religions and movements like Jesus, for example, who was also a hippie type person against government corruption, intensely liberal and radical. Uh, There's Muhammad in Islam with a similar story. Roger Williams, even who I talked about in episode 17 with the first Baptist church in America. I mean, There is so many, and it's pretty compelling to see how all these people created revolutionary movements, but somehow over the years, these movements are morphed into closed-minded, conservative, and even anti-revolutionist establishments. Like you're saying, practicing the opposite of what it was originally intended to be. And I think part of it was a response to the Holocaust because they felt that even the people around them, uh, like their neighbors, their like non-Jewish neighbors, like uh, were all ready to kill them and they felt like betrayed. And also the fact that like the Hasidic community has the highest rate of Holocaust survivors than any other Jewish community in the world. Interesting. When I was growing up, everyone, my grandparents age were Holocaust survivors, like 95%. Like the kid, the school that I went to, I was very unique because only three of my grandparents were Holocaust survivors because my grandma was from Jerusalem. So there was no, there was no Nazis never got there. Um, But pretty much everyone was like full Holocaust survivors. And you have to realize that all of these people lost their entire families and communities. So that had a very strong impact. So in just as much was like also the fact that it felt they have to recreate 
my dad literally told me when I left the community, before I even came out of Chen, just for leaving the community I grew up in, he told me you were letting Hitler win. Ooh. And we're talking 70 years after the Holocaust. So it's very much there. Uh, this, um, I worked at one point with a PhD student who was studying kind of kids and grandkids of Holocaust survivors, and she called it secondhand Holocaust survivors, which is very accurate. Like teachers hitting their kids, like very physically and, and stuff like that, which I think are part of that. Or like whatever. I remember I had this, um, I had a, an advisor in yeshiva in Venice school who was a Holocaust survivor. And whenever we would complain about the food that quite frankly sucked at our on campus, he would always be like, um, your grandparents in the camps would have, uh, would have loved to have all of this food. And usually no one said anything until one, one, one time one student got really upset on him and he's like, yeah, some people died in the camp. <laughs> which, which I think is really rude to say to Holocaust survivor, but I think you were a bit desensitized, like you're a bit desensitized to it when everyone around you is. Um, so, so obviously that had a very strong impact on it as well. But I think another strong impact was the fact that after the war, the majority of Hasidic Jews started living in places that were very Jewish. Like take a place like New York that has more Jews than any city in the world has ever had in recorded history. Um, or like in Israel or in places like London and Antwerp and, and Montreal. In all of these places, the majority of the Jews living there are secular. And by secular, I mean anyone who's not ultra-Orthodox to us was secular. There are many, many denominations and many, many movements. We didn't care if uh, you eat bacon for breakfast every day or if you go to synagogue every day or if you eat bacon and then go to synagogue, which also <laughs> not to say that that's a contradiction. But point being, like, we didn't care your level of observance or not if you were not all church and actually were secular and you're a terrible person. Um, I don't actually think that, but that's what we're told. So, um, so they saw that also as a, an extreme threat, almost just as bad as like the Nazis, like literally. I grew up in a community that, um, well, my sect specifically, there's a lot of different Hasidic sects, all of them following dynasties. Um, but the dynasty I grew up in has a bit of a, a neutral, like they rarely talk about Israel and Zionism. But the school that I went to was part of a sect, and I hope that's okay, and I'm not trying to get too political, just telling the story. They were part of a sect um, that is based in Williamsburg in Brooklyn where I grew up. And they are super anti-Zionist, super anti-Israel um, from a very religious perspective. So they actually would say that Zionists, which was kind of went along with secular Jews, because all secular Jews supposedly are Zionists, which is, again, not accurate, but that's how they saw it. And all Zionists are secular, even if they're religious. Again, inaccurate, but that's cults tend not to really care about facts. Um, so they would say that the Zionists are worse than the Nazis, because the Nazis only took our bodies and the Zionists tried to take our soul. I don't actually, don't quote me on that. It's not something that I'm saying. But that's what I was told growing up. Meaning they saw non-religious, non-Hasidic Jews as a huge threat to them. And as a result of that, they started kind of like sheltering themselves. So to give you another example, like a one-liner to think about how I grew up. So I grew up in New York City. But you can name anything that you might, some like New York, every New York City kid from the 90s might know, whatever it's, uh, any pop culture, any bands, any movies, any TV shows, any music, any newspapers or magazines or celebrities. I didn't even know about them. I didn't know they exist. I'd never even heard of the Beatles. Um, take like Seinfeld, okay, the TV show. Mm -hmm. Arguably one of the most Jewish shows to have ever been on earth. 
I didn't know. It wasn't like, oh, there's the show out that don't watch it. I think there's a lot of American communities and people are used to religious communities, like kind of like rejecting and saying like, don't engage with the outside world. It wasn't like that. I simply didn't know that that existed. We were so sheltered or not even knowing that it exists. And I think LGBTQ community is another example. I, as you might have read in the book, I very much knew that I was a girl since I was a really young age. At some point, I don't want to give too many spoilers of the book. I even tried to take matters into my own hand, as I assume you read, when I was four years old. Um, But I didn't know. Forget about all the trans people. I didn't even know that gay people existed. Like, I knew that there was this concept because of it's in the Bible, but I was always told it's something that used to exist. It doesn't exist anymore because they all, like all the things in the Bible that don't add up, add up with reality, we were always told that nature was different during biblical times. And like, everything was different. So you can't, you can't question anything in the Bible because like, if it says a story that doesn't add up with reality, it's just like, oh, because stuff changed. So I never knew that LGBTQ people existed. We were not even homophobic or transphobic. And I do want to say that a big part of my of my work as I was leaving the community, and I used to joke, is that I want Hasidic people to become transphobic. Which sounds like a weird thing to say for a, an activist and be like, that's what you want. But I wanted them to recognize that we exist. Yeah. I taught until I was 20, which is when I went online for the first time. And oh, in case I forgot to mention, the internet is also totally forbidden. Now, I would think about 50% of the community does have internet access, but at least formally, and I didn't have any access until I was 20. Um, and I didn't know that trans people existed until that time. So I wanted to make sure that there's other kids struggling, which I know they are. They that at least change that. And I don't see a path of being like, oh, the Hasidic community is tomorrow going to wake up and they're going to be like, oh, you're trans, yay, welcome. That, unfortunately, I don't see happening. But at least now that has changed. I can say five years after I started doing my work, mission accomplished. The Hasidic community is transphobic. I can show you all the hate that I get in Hasidic Yiddish and the language that they all speak, and you will see that they are, which sounds like a weird thing to, accomplish, to celebrate, but it has worked. I was the first person to have grown up in the Hasidic community in the history of the movement, 250 years, to openly come out as, as, as trans, okay? That was five years ago. I'm aware of eight people who came out since. Wow. Well, I hope your story will continue to inspire, to push boundaries, and you just continue to be the rebel that you are. I find it really interesting how you were even able to be a rebel while you were in that society. The structure of that culture, which you talk about in detail in the book, is extremely regimented. You are on a schedule from the moment you wake up till the moment you go to sleep. So would you talk about how you creatively rebelled within the community? At some point, I used to have, I had a, had a name as the kosher rebel, which is like... <laughs> Like, for example, like if I decided that I don't want to study like there's like the curriculum, the things that you're supposed to study, um, most students that they don't want to study, they would go outside in the forest or like sit with a partner and like just like talk the whole time instead of study and you would get in trouble for it. For me, I would just be like, I don't want to study this book right now. I want to study this philosophy book that no one has ever heard of right now, but it's in Hebrew and it looks like a kosher book. So... They would get angry and upset, but they couldn't get as as angry. Like, it's like you're a rebel, but you're still studying. So, like, we don't know how to deal with you. Um, Even like an example, you were talking about being radical. So the most radical study session I ever did was 
from Thursday, a Thursday morning at 3.30 in the morning, all the way to the next Friday at um, 8 o'clock at 8.30, no, next Friday at 8.30, in which I studied, um, I believe, 27 hours. No, it was 20, yeah, in 22 hours in a 24-hour period. I just woke up at 3.30 on Thursday, only took breaks for prayers, which added up to about an hour and a half, all three prayers, and then meals for which I put another half an hour of meals. And that's how I went. And then at 10 a.m. on Friday, I collapsed and had to take, be taken into the ER. So uh, uh, moral of the story is don't try it at home. <laughs> but that was, but that was like a form of rebellion because usually you're not supposed to be out of your room from 10.15 until 5 o'clock usually, like 10.15 p.m. to 5 o'clock, that's kind of a curfew. So I would wake up and then like for most of my time, every Friday I would wake up at midnight and do like, I was very into Kabbalistic, mystic Judaism, which was my other way of like making sense of stuff, which also helped me as I described in a book because I found certain texts. Like Kabbalah becomes like Jewish mysticism becomes very gender fluid, very queer, if I may say. Um, so... So I kind of used that a bit as an outlet, but I used to wake up at midnight every Thursday night and then go out and get out of my bed and go to study, which if anyone else, if you get out of your bed at midnight and you go outside, you would get in trouble. But for me, it was like my going outside was going outside to study. So it was like, you are a rebel, but uh, we don't really know what to do about it. Or like, I would want to go to the, before I started studying at midnight, I wanted to go to the ritual event, but they were closed. But there was a way, there was all these like phones. So no one had personal phones. So there was like public phones. Uh, I think one of the only places where public phones are still popular are Hasidic schools. And uh, there was like a way, it was like, you know, these like phone booths that used to be very common back in the day. Um, but I went on top of it. And then there was like a, a, um, a tiled ceiling that you can like punch up and then walk on the beam. And I was right next to the like room of the bat and then punch down and, and go to that. So I used to do that, which again, you would get into trouble for breaking into a room, but like, it's hard for them to be like, Hey, you were in trouble for breaking into the ritual bats. <laughs> That's like, um, yeah. The thing that they didn't know is that sometimes I had my boyfriend there with me, but that's a whole other story. That's a whole nother story. <laughs> well, that is quite the strategy because yeah. What are they going to say? You're being too holy. Stop being so holy. Yes. <laughs> well, there was a question that kept popping up in my head as I read your book and I am excited to hear your response to it. As far as that community is concerned, you lived a somewhat privileged life simply because people labeled you as a boy and you have a royal lineage. But being a girl in a boy's body, I can only imagine how bizarre it must have been as a child to want to live as a girl in a world where being a girl was thought of as lesser than. As your father says in the book, I don't get it. Men have a higher place in society. Men have better roles in the world. Why would you do that? As a child and teenager, did you feel that those ideas of women being lesser than were true? Did you dream of living a lesser life? Or because you did live a privileged life within the community, did you dream of living as a girl who was treated as an equal? 
here's the say. Here's the thing I will say first. To, to st- I think like what we usually think of as privileged or not, specifically until you get married, is very different. It's like teenage girls have relative more freedom than teenage boys. Not relative. They have a lot more freedom than teenage boys. Um, once you're married, it kind of flips around. Well, well one of the um, I'm part of um, a community called like a Footsteps, which is a nonprofit organization that is supporting people in New York City who are leaving the Hasidic community. And one of the most, the longest debates we have ever had on our Google like group and like email chains and listserv has been of who has it worse. I think there are things where it's harder for women and there are parts where it's harder for men. Um, specifically, once you leave, like if you're a married woman, it might be a lot harder for you. You can't just get away with being outside. You are expected to follow your husband and so on. But at the same time, and specifically if you're not married, a woman gets to go out with friends while a boy is just supposed to study the whole time. And then there's obviously the education part, which um, people who were raised as boys have a lot more to catch up on. I ultimately think that both have it, both have a hard time. And they are differences. Um, I will say for myself, yes, I always grew up knowing that women were less, but in many ways I was okay with it because the way it was told, like I never questioned the fact that I'm a woman, but I grew up in such a sexist society. And and like, I think women for women, there's always, they, they, they always use these excuses of how like separate but equal, which we always know is never accurate. I always tell them that like, oh, women don't study religious studies because you don't need it to be holy, which they only, they only tell these things for women kind of to make them feel better. They never say that to men. So I didn't even get that part, but I didn't care. I was, I was okay with taking that on. I used to fantasize, yes, being a housewife, we just have to have a lot of babies, even though I have five older sisters and I saw all of them being pregnant, having babies. And I felt like it's torture specifically when you just have babies from age 18 to 45 nonstop. But my identity was just strong, so strong that I never questioned my identity. And if that meant living with what we would call less privilege, then so be it. Wow. Just so complicated, but you do not live in that community now. You did leave that community and culture and are now in the heart of New York City, which is an epicenter of American culture. What was that transition like? I doubt it was as easy as walking across the street and just being like, bye, bitches. (laughs) Bye, bitches. That's what I should have done. (laughs) I wish. No, it's like, imagine... Immigrating to a new country, well, mine is the legal part, immigrating to a new country where people don't see you as an immigrant, where you know, not just a new country, a new continent and a new century. Like I freaked out the first time I walked into a Starbucks because my family never ate out. They are 100% kosher restaurants in Brooklyn. We never went to any of them. Only thing I ever had to choose about clothing was which black on black design I want on my blonde black coat. Suddenly you walk into Macy's. Remember the first time I went shopping for a suit and I was like, what? Like, there are way too many options. That being a struggle. Obviously, the lack of education. No education whatsoever. The lack of any pop culture reference. You might think, oh, I also don't watch that much TV. I didn't watch, not even knowing any of it. I will say the first movie that I watched was in the summer of 2012, and it was Magic Mike. Shut up. It was a really weird experience. I have never seen such a big screen. 
And it was this AMC theater with this huge screen. And I was sitting on the second or third row. I didn't know yet that the front rows are not good. How would I know anything about it? And then there was this, oh, I think it's the opening scene where like there's like Mike, like the stripper is like like standing up in his bed. And it wasn't a 3D movie, but I felt like he was going to jump onto me. I was like, it was this like, I think I wish everyone could experience the first time seeing uh, anything on a large screen as an adult, because I feel like most most people now just, they probably don't even remember the first time they were in a theater. So that was a very interesting experience, but I still have cultural gaps. And I think by now I know enough that I know what I don't know. And I know enough to follow along in conversation. Oh, well, since being introduced to movies and TV shows, what are some of your favorites so far? I think I would love, I would leave Magic Mike in it. Uh, I definitely could be because it was the first one. Yeah, it has a sentimental place. I totally get that. I would say Hunger Games Catching Fire. And the big reason, though, that I related to it, what, it was a more personal because I felt so much that, like, like the whole, like, story was, like, so I, I related to it. Like, the capital is, like, such a Hasidic cult. <laughs> yeah. Which an elite, and then you have these, like, tributes who are, like, and, and then you get, like, you're, like, Peter, and, like, they become rebels and, like, sneaking around, like, there was all these, like, it, it, I just really related to it. I woke up the next morning to the sound of my phone blowing up. There were messages, hundreds of them. Facebook, my blog, my email account, all were pinging me with notifications and new messages and friend requests, many from people I'd never heard of. Today I live fully as a woman, and I get to share my story often. Abby, where can people find you, follow your story, and keep up with the amazing work that you're doing? Well, I am everywhere. I have a website, which is abbychavestein.com, but it is more stuff on my social media. I have a Facebook page, just Abby Stein on the blue check mark. You can't miss it. I have a Twitter and Instagram, both. I'm Abby Chavestein on both. You can get my book in hardcover, Kindle, and audio book at tinyurl.com slash becomingeve, or you can just look it up online. But if you want a quick link, it's tinyurl.com slash becomingeve. And I, yes, stalk me online. Thanks, Abby. It was so wonderful talking with you. Thank you for having me. I could talk to Abby for a long time. I find her journey and the aesthetic community so interesting. Here are my main takeaways from this discussion. Number one, Israel Ben Elazer, the Baal Shem Tov, is considered the founding father of Hasidic Judaism who Abby is a descendant of. Hasidic Judaism is a Jewish religious group that arose as a spiritual revival movement. Number two, countless movements and religions have started as positive and revolutionary, yet through time, usually because of fear and or being in opposition, they change and become something different, sometimes the complete opposite. Another reason why knowing history is so important. How do we stop this cycle? Making sure our good work today is still good work 50 years from now. 
Number three, post-God trauma is real. Number four, there is a huge difference between tolerance and acceptance. Tolerance should not be tolerated. Number five, Abby was raised in Brooklyn, in New York City. However, because of her community and how intensely they were sheltered, she had no concept of the outside world. Now, that is an extreme for sure, but I think we can actually learn something quite valuable from this. All of us live in bubbles, varying in size, and it's important that we look beyond and learn about what we do not know, what we do not see. We shouldn't assume beyond our bubble is bad, blindly accepting prejudices and stereotypes as facts. I think if we were all willing to venture outside of our worlds, we might discover other incredible people, communities, and cultures. And also, for all the people who feel alone, I think it's a beautiful reminder that there is more to the world than our 10-block radius. No, you might not have an uplifting community right where you are, and that is shitty as fuck. But be hopeful knowing that beyond those 10 blocks, there might be communities that love, accept, and uplift you. I have posted links in the show notes for Abby and her book, Becoming Eve. You can also find the links and information for Abby on the Have a Blessed Gay website. It is haveablessedgay.com. Please do check it out and sign up for the newsletter. And let me know what you think. I always love hearing from you. Let me know what you think of the website and also what you thought of this episode. Also, if you do have the time, I'd so appreciate you rating and leaving a quick review. Now, if you do need help with post-God trauma, if you are feeling lonely or struggling with any of this subject matter and you can't laugh it off, I always post helplines in the show notes, so please check them out if you need to. Just remember this, you are special, you are purposeful, and you are fucking beautiful. Have a blessed day, y'all.